Alarm Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm on the line today with my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hey, Eric. So on this week's show, Medea and I are speaking with Rachel Neuer about her recent book, I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. So this is a fascinating kind of history, basically, of MDMA that brings us right to the present in which, as you know, many of our listeners may know, there's renewed interest in kind of how psychedelic drugs can help treat serious trauma, you know, PTSD, other kind of mental disorders, also addiction. Actually, you know, this is, I don't know if we've ever talked about this before, Medea, but have you ever tried MDMA or Molly? I have. It was not called Molly when I tried it. It was, <laughs> it was called E at the time. Okay. You know, no family members listen to this. So, so who cares? Yeah. I did it a lot in high school. I did a lot, you know, not exactly every weekend, but more often than I probably should have been doing it, even though it was like, it was a big time commitment. And I, you know, I, I had fun. Had a good time. Were you using it to dance and stuff, or was it to kind of no. party with friends, or was it just hanging out? It was kind of just hanging out. We kind of just hung out in in Queens, and I did it. Yeah, once at a club at Limelight, which you know, R.I.P. I think it was no longer oh, around. Yeah, yeah. Um, historic, historic, <laughs> historic. Actually, let me tell you a good story about Limelight. You ready? The yes. one time I went, the one time I went, it was actually shut down rumored because of a police crackdown on E and it was like three in the morning and suddenly all the lights went on and everybody was quiet. The music was turned off. And then you could just hear one person in the other room go, don't look at me. (laughs) (laughs) That's like, that's both like an amazing, like when the lights come on in the club and everybody's like, (laughs) no, no light. light." (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) but so those, that's my experience at this point. It was so, so long ago that I actually don't remember it that well, but it was, you know, it was fun revisiting the history of this drug, which, which has gone through like so many different phases as long as I have been aware of it. And I certainly didn't know any of the political history behind banning it or really the dubious research behind the claims that it puts holes in your brain Because I remember that was like a whole thing. Anyway, so yeah, so that was interesting. What about you, Eric? Are you a big MDMA taker? (laughs) No, I am. I always wanted to take it, but I never did. And in part, that's because I have anxiety. This sounds very foolish. And I'm sure that it was because of a lot of the misinformation that this, you know, Rachel gets into in her book. I think it was about a lot of the misinformation that I consumed when I was, you know, a kid or a teen and in high school, which was the same thing you're saying. It's going to put holes in your brain, blah, 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 blah. I was also very against any kind of drug that was not quote unquote natural. I mean, mm. so, you know, that like cocaine or, you know, mushrooms or certainly marijuana, I was like, well, these are plants, you know, so they're probably not 
that harmful. This is, of course, completely ignoring the way in which all of those substances can be adulterated. And, you know, they're, they're not exactly like, oh, it's just farm to table, you know, drugs. It's, it's like your farm to table cocaine habit. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was my Alice Waters version of, of drugs, you know, just something purely natural. Mm-hmm. But I think that I was always scared that it was like, oh, God, what if it's cut with something mm-hmm. that I... I won't know, or what if I'm in trouble? And I, I had serious concerns about being quote unquote out of control uh-huh. of myself, which is hilarious because as a teen, I did take mushrooms and was completely not ready for what that experience was. I mean, I remember there was like, at one point, I felt like I saw a spinning, cr- and I feel like this is what people describe of LSD, which I was also very afraid of taking because I was like, Oh my God, well, it, with mushrooms, I've heard if you just set the setting, if you're having a bad experience, you can just, you know, kind of reset yourself uh-huh. through like mood music or whatever. But I remember seeing like this flaming white cross come spinning out of the sky, like right Whoa. towards the car in which I, I was not driving, but you know, I was a passenger. And then I remember it kind of like, quote unquote, hit the car. It didn't, it was just a complete hallucination. And I felt at such peace and like, okay with everything and okay with myself, not easy when you're in high school where mm-hmm. nobody's really okay with themselves. But yeah, that was kind of it for me. And then, you know, obviously I, I grew an interest in marijuana. I had tried that obviously throughout high school and college, but then it was really when I did the South Beach diet after graduating from college that I was like, Exactly. I was like, well, if I can't drink for two weeks, like I was a big drinker oh. at the time, I was like, oh, that's going to be terrible for me. And so it's like, you know, well, I guess I'll try marijuana more regularly. And then I was like, wait a minute, I'm spending way less money than I do drinking in a night. And I'm like, don't wake up hungover. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. So then that mm-hmm. was the way that I like got off of drinking alcohol and into smoking <laughs> But yeah, so that was my my journey. You know, I've always wanted to try, especially after reading this book and the experiences I've heard from friends like you, for example, Medea, that, oh, I had an amazing time. You know, I really felt connected. Like all the things people say about MDMA, I'm like, oh, I would love to experience that. But now I feel perhaps like foolishly so that I'm like, you're too old to do that. Like to no. trying out new drugs is like a thing for your teens and 20s, like not when you're in your like 30s and 40s. I would, I think I would agree. I think I, I think I've passed the threshold of trying new drugs and I'm now just, just too old to do it. Even though what, yeah, we're like in our thirties. So, you know, exactly. whatever. <laughs> being alive feels like being on drugs sometimes the older that you get. It's true. You know, but yeah, a bit of a like dog leg turn in the conversation here, but you know, I know it's summer and people are looking for things to watch, you know, as they're like either off from school or if they're, you know, just need a kind of break from the heat in LA or New York, where I hear it's getting also like boilingly hot. Is there anything that you've been watching lately that feels like it's fun kind of summer fair? Yes. The thing that I've been watching lately, well, I finished it because there's no way to not finish it all in one go. And it's actually related to drugs because there is a big there's a drug accusation at the, in the middle of it, but it's called Selling Sunset. It's a show presumably about real estate. The real estate is really 
really ancillary to it. And it does feel a little bit like drugs to um, watch it and see that like, you know, these like $20 million houses exist and they're all uniformly ugly. But though, you know what, I'll take one in a heartbeat. Somebody out there is listening. I don't think it's ugly. I think it's gorgeous. Give it to me. The show is about a bunch of real estate brokers in Los Angeles. They're all gorgeous women dressed in just completely insane outfits. And they, you know, mostly just get into fights. They sell, I think, some real estate, but again, not the point. And this season is really good. It's really good because the fights are particularly meaningless. And at a certain point, one of them is is accused of being on drugs. And that's a really funny conversation to watch. So yeah, I really, I recommend it. If you just need a little switch, switch in your brain where you're like, you know, want to go from on to off, Selling Sunset will do it for you. Ooh, I have another. So similarly, mine's also reality TV. Dan, my my husband and I just finished watching Below Decks. Mm -hmm. And that is, it's basically a, a reality series that's ostensibly, like you're saying, ostensibly, it's about being on a boat of various kinds and like the crew that works a boat. But this one is specifically about sailing yacht. And uh-huh. my husband used to sail. He worked on the Pioneer, which is a historic um, tall ship in New York Harbor. Oh. So, you know, he has this long interest in sailing, which I do not share. I don't think that we were meant to be on the water, even though I'm fine with us being in planes. But I'm like, you know, it seems it's really out in the sun. That's just not for me, you know, direct sunlight. But it is fascinating both to see how they kind of move around with this enormous luxury yacht that, you know, that sails. So that part is kind of cool. And it's really about the drama and the fights between the staff. So, of course, there's all that kind of juicy drama. But then it's also about the insane guests that take oh, these. Oh, like, yeah. Well, these charters are like three days. And I think it's like the tips alone are like fifteen to 22000 So I can only imagine how much the actual charter costs. Mm-hmm. Um, but those guests are also their own drama. You know, like there's either the, the bros that get like super drunk and are crazy. Or there's just the like the super rich people that are like chill, but also like have to have like a three course meal served to them every, you know, at every meal. But it, it was really fun. And I highly recommend it. It feels very summery. It's all about being in the sun. And they're in, um, I believe they're off the coast of, they're in Corfu, um, oh. which I'm trying to remember exactly where that is. But the shots are gorgeous. Like that beautiful kind of like Mediterranean, I think, sea is just that beautiful blue. It's just amazing. So highly, highly recommend. And, for you, Medea, if you love Selling Sunset, I can tell both that you're very much missing LA, which warms my heart. But if you are still feeling that vibe, check out Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which my mom just finished in about, I think, two and a half months, all 13 seasons. Wow. So she came out to visit us. Yeah. And we had this, it is, it's one of those shows that you, and all of these, I think, are like this. As Medea has been saying for our listeners, it's when you want to turn your brain off. This is not stimulating stuff, but it is stuff that nonetheless, you find these interesting narrative arcs that get built into it. And you can tell that the editors and people putting the show together are actually really good at what they do. Like they know how to create story. Um, So from a, let's try to rescue it from a pure literary narrative perspective. It's a wonderful study in human characters and, you know, how to create drama and, and ongoing story arts. 
Well, this sounds great. Seems like we have a lot to do this summer, a lot to watch. Should we get to the conversation with Rachel? Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. We have Rachel Neuer with us on the line today. Rachel is a widely published, award-winning investigative science journalist with bylines and publications including the New York Times, National Geographic, and Scientific American. She joins us today to discuss her latest book, I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. That book is a result of Rachel's deep research into the world of psychedelic-assisted therapy in recent years, including her coverage of clinical trials for MDMA and other psychedelic substances that are currently underway in the wake of the drug being labeled a potential breakthrough therapy by the U.S. government in 2017. In getting to the contemporary explosion of interest in MDMA and psychedelic-assisted therapies, Rachel takes us back to the drug's beginnings in the Bay Area of the 1960s. She tells the stories of pioneers including chemist Alexander Shulgin, as well as the revolutionary work of Rick Doblin and others whose determination to save patients and heal the world often put them in the crosshairs of colleagues and law enforcement. Rachel's accessible account of MDMA's past and present helps inform and challenge what we know about how the notorious party drug works to treat addiction, PTSD, and other trauma-based disorders— work that now has the world seeing Molly in a whole new light. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. We're thrilled to have you. So maybe we can just start with you telling us about how you became interested in the subject and how you started on the book. So I have been a recreational user of MDMA, full disclosure, since, I don't know, like 2014 or so. It's been about 10 years, but it was never a subject that was of much interest journalistically to me. My history is in ecology, wildlife conservation, illegal wildlife trade. Those are really my dominant beats. But when the pandemic hit, like a lot of people, I sort of having like an existential career crisis and just like, what am I doing with my life? Do I really want to be pigeonholed as like the journalist who just writes about animals dying? I realized that I was craving a new challenge in terms of my career, in terms of my own intellectual development. And then I was pondering, what else is it that I'm interested in, but readers are also potentially interested in? And again, full disclosure, I may or may not have been on MDMA at the time. I was like having this mental conversation with myself. And then it just popped into my head, MDMA. I thought, you know, I've seen in the news a little bit of information about clinical trials coming up for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. It kind of just felt like the time might be right for a book on the subject. So I sort of put a pin in that idea, you know, when I was sitting on my couch on this drug. And the next day I started looking into it and realized there wasn't a book about MDMA, at least not a current book that really brought together the history of this molecule, the politics, the culture, and most important for me, the science and the mental health implications. So I decided to write this book to fill that need. For listeners who have never tried it, who've never done it, barely know what it is, can you describe personally to you what MDMA feels like? For sure. Okay, so very important caveat here. I have never done MDMA-assisted therapy, and I have heard from sources, from therapists, and even from my own husband that it is a completely different experience than doing it recreationally. I've heard that sources say like, like, oh, you know, I don't know why they call it ecstasy. This is really hard, difficult work therapeutically. I've not experienced it like that myself. 
My favorite recreational setting is pretty typical, a club, a warehouse, a rave. I love to listen to some good electronic music or disco and the drug just really helps you plug into that music. In fact, MDMA users' heartbeats are actually tend to be on the same beat as typical EDM music, which I think is really interesting. In terms of the feelings, though, you know, it's hard to describe any psychoactive drug in words, I think, but it really is like waves of euphoria. And that's why MDMA users are said uh, colloquially to be rolling when they're on the drug. It's like you're rolling through this ocean of good feeling. You're smiling. You're happy. You're in the moment in a way that at least I personally struggle to be in my sober life. All my anxieties and my like neuroses and, oh, what am I going to do? Like, I need to be doing this. Like, what is this person think? What did I see? You know, all these things are put out of your head and you're really just beautifully in the moment in a way that, again, I struggle to do. And perhaps the most beautiful thing about MDMA is the feeling of connection it gives you to other people, to yourself, to the planet and to life at large. Just this feeling that we're all sort of in this together. And it sounds cheesy, but that love is the reason. Love is the ultimate thing that we should all be striving for. What I really appreciated about your book is the way that it rewinds to the beginning of kind of how MDMA emerges in the clinical context in this country, at least. And I want to think about that as the work of two men who I think have largely shaped the contemporary public understanding of MDMA as therapy and as dangerous drugs. So on the one side, we have Rick Doblin, right? This amazing, I mean, as a journalist, that's like the perfect character to write about, right? Oh, um, yeah. He's this <laughs> renegade believer. He's pushed scientists and others to explore MDMA's healing capacity. And that's largely done through the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or what we will call it for the rest of this conversation, MAPS, which is what everybody else knows it as. But then on the other side, you have Georges Ricard, whose spurious and, as you point out, retracted research papers have shaped, I think, much of the negative perception of MDMA in the public's mind as a dangerous drug that is punching holes in your brain, like all the things that I remember hearing when I was in high school. So can you talk a little bit about how they've shaped both the space and possibility for thinking about MDMA and psychedelic-assisted therapy more generally in the U.S.? Absolutely. Well, I think it is important before I launch into the Rick and George talk to point out that therapists have been using MDMA in their practice since, I guess, 1976. So MDMA has this rich, long history of therapeutic use long before it was a drug used for recreation or just sheer pleasure. It was being used as a therapeutic catalyst in the ways that we're now finally thinking of today. So MDMA was put on Schedule 1 in 1985. So for a good 10 years, MDMA was out there in the world, legal to use, and quietly proliferating among therapists in the U.S. and beyond. They were keeping it quiet because they knew that when MDMA isn't applied for something like PTSD, it is a drug that makes you feel good. And any drug that makes you feel good is going to inevitably catch the eye of the DEA and wind up being scheduled. So it has this decade-long history before 
Rick Doblin really enters the scene. And Rick at the time is this young kid. You know, he loves things like LSD and other psychedelics. He's kind of looking for his way in the world. You know, what is my purpose? Like, what can be my contribution? And at the same time, he's a kid who was brought up with tales of the Holocaust around the dinner table at his home near Chicago with his parents. So he has it in his head that, you know, at any moment, like people can just kind of go crazy and start killing each other. And he's looking for really big world solutions to address things like genocide, you know, hate. He finds his way to MDMA in the early 80s. And at first he's kind of dismissive of any drug that like won't melt your ego, like LSD. Like, oh, if you can have a conversation on this drug, how important could it be? He likes to say, but um, he did take MDMA himself with his girlfriend at the time and was just really impressed by how easily they could communicate and openly and how it just, yeah, just opened them up to this really honest conversation that wasn't like, Yes, it was the effects of the drug, but it wasn't like, oh, it's because we're high we're saying this. Like, this is truly what we have inside of us. And he realized that, yes, MDMA could be this incredible tool for therapy. But more than that, MDMA, he thought, could be this drug that, like, brings the world together and makes us love each other and connect with each other in this way that would prevent things you know, hopefully, like genocide from happening again. So Rick, once MDMA is scheduled, really makes it his quest. And bless his heart, he's been doing this for almost 38 years now to bring MDMA back to the light of respectability through credible scientific studies and by going through the system, the government system of clinical trials, you know, under the FDA and legalizing MDMA medicalizing it, and then through medicalization, like we've seen with cannabis, reintroducing recreational use and destigmatization, legalization that way. One thing he ran into in the 1990s was this complete focus on the government side in terms of funding and also on a lot of researchers' side on the supposed neurotoxicity of MDMA. So, you know, we think back to like that infamous, you know, ecstasy, it eats holes in users' brains thing that went around, at least when I was in junior high and high school. And a lot of that science, you know, it was funded by these huge grants from the government, millions of dollars that were essentially to fund studies to, you know, quote unquote, prove that MDMA was neurotoxic, that it harmed the brain. And a lot of the work was being done in a lab in Johns Hopkins by George, and I think his last name is Riccardi. I'm actually not sure because unfortunately he didn't respond to my requests for interviews. So I never got to talk to him, which, you know, is understandable. His lab was really focused on this MDMA neurotoxicity question for over a decade. He did this work with his professional and personal partner, Una McCann, who's also at Johns Hopkins. You know, they just had study after study coming out, supposedly showing that MDMA harmed users' brains, but there were all kinds of problems with those studies. For example, they wouldn't usually control for MDMA users taking other drugs. And if you're a person going to rave, most likely you're also doing alcohol, you might be mixing in some ketamine or cocaine or, you know, whatever else. So it's really hard to control for any detrimental impacts attributed to MDMA if you're also doing all these other things to your brain and your body. The really big turning point came in the early aughts when the Riccardi Lab published a paper in Science that allegedly, supposedly, definitively showed that MDMA was neurotoxic and that specifically it impacted the dopamine center of the brain, which was like this weird 
out of left field finding because normally MDMA is associated with serotonin, but they found this horrible effect with dopamine and these monkeys they gave MDMA to, you know, some of these animals just like dropped dead. It was like this huge scare, like MDMA is going to cause Parkinson's and all these poor ravers, you know, it's horrible. Stop it now. Um, But as it turned out, Riccardi and his colleagues had actually given the monkeys methamphetamine. Afterwards, everyone's like, well, how did this not raise a red flag among, you know, Riccardi and his lab members, but also the peer review process? You know, this kind of finding has never been found for MDMA. Also, just like, look at the real world. Ravers aren't dropping dead taking MDMA. So, you know, before that study ever got published, they should have really looked closer at the results. So that was sort of a turning point for this whole neurotoxicity thing in terms of, okay, you know, let's take like a more serious look at this. And maybe this has been hyped and politicized. Well, on that note, yeah, maybe we could talk about the politics of the drug and the ways in which scheduling and classifying drugs officially is a political process. I think most people would just assume, well, scheduling is, it's just a scientific matter. Either a thing is dangerous or it's not dangerous. And the government has enough information to decide which it is. But as you discuss in great depth in this book, that's really not the case. It's almost all politics in a way. So maybe it's a big question, but can we (laughs) talk a little bit about the ways in which politics have affected how we have understood this drug and how we've sort of interacted with it? Definitely. Yeah, it is a big question, but it's a really important one. And it's one that I really didn't understand, like the true scope of the problem before I started this book project myself. Because again, you just think, okay, well, the government has scientists in charge, which really isn't the case. Drug regulation falls to the DEA, which is a law enforcement agency that's driven by law enforcement priorities, not by science. And I think a great example of how like there is no sort of checks and balances for prioritizing the science comes up with MDMA. When the DEA moved to schedule MDMA in 1985, this big group of scientists and therapists, and we're talking like professors at Harvard, got together to push back against the DEA and say, hey, you know, this isn't right. We shouldn't put MDMA in Schedule 1. We should put it in Schedule 3 because that way we can continue doing research with it and we can continue treating patients with it because by definition, a Schedule 1 drug has no medical usefulness. They actually won their case against the DEA and this administrative judge at the time, you know, he issued a uh, judgment saying MDMA should be in Schedule 3. You know, there's lots of evidence that it is used medically and that it's beneficial. But just because of like legal technicalities with how the system works, I can't even get into all that. His judgment was only a suggestion. So the DEA was like, oh, no, like you haven't understood anything. We're throwing this out. We're going to do what we wanted the whole time anyway and just put it in Schedule 1 which is where it's been this entire time. And just to keep things brief, I guess the other way that I see the politicization of science is the way that we fund research. So like 90% or something of the drug research funding in the entire world, not just in the US, comes from the NIH. And they just will not fund generally studies involving Schedule One drugs. They finally just did so, I think, last year with a psilocybin study of Johns Hopkins. So hopefully that marks a turning point in history. But, you know, until then, it's like if you want to get into studying drugs, the only thing you could get funding for was studying how harmful they were. You couldn't study the possible benefits or, you know, how people use them or, you know, harm reduction or really anything. So politicization affects all aspects of drug research. 
You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Rachel Neuer, author of I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. I have the scholar and writer Kristen Ross back on the line. Kristen Ross is the author of many, many books. Her latest is called The Politics and Poetics of Everyday Life, and she is here to give us a book recommendation. Well, I tried to think about within the thematic of everyday life and also to sort of shift the scene away from France and to the United States. And I think that one of the most impressive recent books that I see as being within the context of dailiness and an amazing rendering of it would be um, Saidia Hartman, who is a scholar who wrote the book Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. And it's a very imaginative kind of attempt to chronicle the forgotten everyday lives of Black women and You can see her moving back and forth between, she's a scholar, but she's venturing very much into fiction at the same time that she does this. It's a wonderful book. I would also go back to um, a scholar and a militant that we recently lost, and that's Mike Davis. You know, Mike Davis, his version of Los Angeles is the best that we've ever had. It's the fullest, it's the most... uh, riveting kinds of social analysis and that we have. And the reason is because he was so embedded himself in a whole literature coming out of the detective, the noir tradition, back to Raymond Chandler, back to Ross MacDonald, through people like Frederick Jameson. And the detective genre is an absolutely essential genre for thinking about everyday life. And in my book, I talk about quite a, a lot about primarily French and American, the L.A. detective writers as well. So and in that sense, you know, I have spent the last few months reading the complete works of Georges Simonon, who wrote the May Gray detective novels. You've probably seen versions of them. There's a great series with a, oh, now I can't remember the Belgian actor who plays uh, May Gray, but these are massively now translated into English, as are Simonon's non-May Gray novels. And these are dark. These are the darkest things I've ever read. And they're called roman dur, you know, like hardcore. They're very hardcore, but they're also wonderful. I also just would mention a forgotten novelist who's one of my favorites, Janet Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. And she wrote three or four historical novels. I don't, I have no idea whether she's alive or dead or, or anything, but those are among my favorite. Wow. Can you tell us the title of any of your favorite Janet Lewis books? The Ghost of Monsieur Scarron is one. Oh, actually... You might know one of her books was quite famous, The Wife of Martin Gare. It's been made into a movie three or four times. It's about a, uh, a woman in the, in the Middle Ages whose husband disappears and then comes back. And she claims it's her husband, but no one really believes her. It's all the question of a guy coming back 20 years later. He's been gone for 20 years. Is he her husband or not? Wow. 
Oh my God, that sounds amazing. And um, what a cool assortment of books. Okay, can you tell us the books and authors one more time? Okay, Cydia Hartman, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. Pretty much anything by Mike Davis, but City of Quartz was, of course, his masterpiece. And then through him, I would I would go back to anything by Raymond Chandler or Ross MacDonald. The essays by Frederick Jameson about Los Angeles and space are very interesting to revisit. Janet Lewis and Seminole, George Seminole. Wow. Well, thank you for a really exciting assortment of books. Thank you. That was Kristen Ross. Her latest book is called The Politics and Poetics of Everyday Life. You're listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Rachel Newell, author of I Feel Love. I know you've been studying this stuff for a number of years, you know, and also just like personally in your own experience. One of the things that I found the most fascinating about your book is the breakdown of this thing that you call the critical window. It really explained for me in a way that I had not seen before how psychedelic assisted therapy, but MDMA in specific, helps to reorient or give people who are suffering a different purchase on their trauma. So again, full disclosure, this is very different than a recreational usage of this drug. Definitely. But were there other things like that that just surprised you once you got from reporting, say, for the New York Times or in news or article form to a full book? Okay, the neuroscience stuff to me is just absolutely fascinating. Just to like give listeners a really quick recap, there's research out of Johns Hopkins, a different lab, not George Riccardi, showing that MDMA reopens what is called a critical period, which is like this finite period of malleability of brain development. Usually when we're kids, Critical periods exist to teach us the things we need to know, like for life, like how to speak whatever language we speak, how to use our fingers, how to see, how to smell. So MDMA in doing this in the therapeutic context only is giving people a chance to sort of readdress their trauma and literally rewire their brains, rewire their neurons. So it's not that you're like forgetting these traumatic memories, but you're given a chance to reformulate them so you can move forward in a more healthy way. So yeah, that was a huge surprise to me and just fascinating stuff to learn about. I mean, everything in this book came as as a surprise because like I said, I really hadn't done much on this topic before besides outside of professional settings. One thing that was a huge shock is just how much disinformation and confusion there is out there. So for example, I commonly encountered people, but even friends like in my own life, who were confused about what ecstasy and molly were. Ecstasy is the name for MDMA recreationally that was given to it in the 80s and pretty much persisted until the early aughts. And then ecstasy was rebranded as molly to try to get away from this like negative rave perception and some legislation that the U.S. had enacted to try to combat ecstasy. And molly was shorthand for molecule. It was kind of like this cutesy name and it was supposed to speak to a pure form of the drug. But really, ecstasy and molly are just words for MDMA or for things that are supposed to be MDMA. You know, that's not to say that your street drugs contain any MDMA or that they're not mixed with other things. So I guess the last part of that question in terms of like what I was so surprised to find was just how much prohibition informs the harms of recreational drug use or like drives those harms, I should say. So 
So many of the ER visits or even deaths attributed to MDMA stem directly from prohibition, from not knowing what's in your drugs, from not knowing how much of your drug to take, from not knowing how to behave on that drug to keep yourself safe, just because there's no vetted, trusted information out there or means of getting legal supply. I think we should talk a little bit about the underground culture that really contributed to the rise of the drug and the panic around its use and people sort of not quite being informed, but just panicking anyway. And part of that is because there was like an underground movement, parties, et cetera, where this, this drug was being used. Can you tell us about that? Tell us about how these parties came up and what was going on. Yeah, the party stuff is so fascinating to me. So MDMA was in the U.S. at least, it was pushed by this group called the Texas Group, which was like these group of producers and MDMA sellers who, they aren't like your typical like narcos type people, that you know, stereotypical people you think of selling drugs. They were this group of people who wanted to like expand people's consciousnesses and spread love around the world, but also get rich in the process. So they really proliferated the use of MDMA recreationally in centers in the U.S. like New York City and San Francisco, but also places you wouldn't necessarily expect like Dallas. Dallas became a like total center of like MDMA culture in the mid to late 80s. But then, you know, the scheduling happened and MDMA began to get cracked down in the U.S. And simultaneously, it had jumped ship and gone over to Ibiza the island off the coast of Spain that's now a very famous place for partying. And there it was sort of discovered by these young British youths who would come over to, you know, party in the summer. Among them was Paul Oakenfold, the famous DJ. He and his mates went there, you know, for his birthday party, discovered MDMA and also house music and just absolutely fell in love. Took MDMA back with them and that MDMA culture around it to the UK, to London, where they started throwing these MDMA and house music parties. And from there, people just loved it. It spread all over the UK. And because clubs at the time would close at like 1 or 2 a.m., this led to the creation of raves. You know, people, you know, going to some abandoned warehouse or airport hangar or parking lot or, you know, wherever and throwing these all night parties. And, you know, that was really where we get rave culture, which ultimately led to the creation of the multi-billion dollar electronic dance music industry that we know today. So, yeah, I mean, MDMA's proliferation in the recreational scene really changed the world in a way. I mean, it certainly touched way more lives than something like LSD or MDMA in a clinical setting, for example. I know that many of us are quite excited, including now, ironically, the VA, um, mm -hmm. which is since 2017 has been doing a number of clinical trials that they're that are currently underway right now with people cited in your book, such as Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who yeah. is an amazing thinker on this stuff. But I want to talk a little bit about we're very excited about the possibilities but some of the things that don't always come across are like that this is not a magic bullet. Oh, you're very sure. responsible in terms of doing kind of the coverage is oftentimes bleedingly positive, And mm -hmm. we don't talk about the people for whom this doesn't work. We also don't talk about and this is what I want to ask you about the kind of darker side of a bit of a renegade industry. So, for example, you mentioned a lot the New York Magazine podcast cover mm -hmm. story, which revealed psychedelic the kind of 
charges of ethical violations and sexual abuse perpetrated by Richard Jensen and Donna Dreyer, who were part of a MAPS-sponsored phase two trial. So my last question then is, how can we explore these incredible therapeutic possibilities while still protecting patients from abuse when they are in highly suggestible states? And what do stories like this do to the movement? Yeah, I mean, stories like this terrible story of abuse that was highlighted on that podcast are really important to discuss and to acknowledge. Therapeutic abuse is as old as the therapy industry itself. You know, humans are fallible and there's always going to be bad actors who want to take advantage of people, especially when they're in vulnerable states, which includes therapeutic patients. When you're on something like MDMA, though, it opens up the possibility for abuse and for harm on a much deeper level. Because again, you're in that open critical period state, you're suggestible, you're literally on a drug, you know, it's like drugging someone. In terms of how to control that, you know, it's really going to be up to the community to figure out some checks and balances on that power of therapy and how to, you know, hold people accountable who violate that power. I think the one most important thing we can do, though, is to legalize this therapy with MDMA, because then, you know, it is above ground. We can have systems in place. We can have bodies that accredit therapists and can take away their license, for example, in place. We can hold them legally accountable in a way that we can't do right now with underground therapists. That said, even that will not stop the problem, unfortunately. You know, this this issue that was discussed on that podcast you cited happened in a MAPS-sponsored clinical to trial. So these were legitimate therapists who were supposed to be taking care of a patient and really violated her. I don't think that that should stop things like MDMA-assisted therapy from being brought to market because there is just so much, just tremendous promise for some people of healing. But yeah, it's something we really need to be thinking about. And it's something that the community really needs to come to terms with and reckon with. All right. That's a perfect place to stop. We've been speaking with Rachel Neuer, author of I Feel Love, MDMA and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. Thanks so much for joining us, Rachel. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.